Could you please open your Bible to uh, Revelation chapter 1? So the, the chapter splits into two segments. We'll be considering the first segment tonight and uh, the, the second uh, section next week. But the central theme is the same. Jesus Christ uh, is the theme of this uh, first chapter. I'd like to begin uh, with a question. How, how would you gauge uh, your interest in prophecy? Okay, if you had to give yourself a mark out of 10, okay, 10 being completely captivated and one being not interested at all, okay, where would you rank on the scale? You know, often in churches like our own who interpret prophecy literally and through a premillennial lens, there tends to be a greater interest and fascination with prophecy, and, uh, and that's usually a good thing. And uh, yet, allow me to say something that may initially seem slightly controversial to you. In our enthusiasm and excitement, we can actually end up missing what prophecy is really about if we're not careful. Okay, and this manifests itself in varying ways. Okay, we can end up trying to make dogmatic assertions about future events that we don't have the scriptural warrant to make. We can make bold claims about dates and times. There have been many people who have looked very foolish because they have done such things. We can end up down prophetic rabbit holes, buying into varying hypotheses, looking for signs of the time in absolutely every world events, and a lot of that is incredibly unhelpful and even unhealthy in the extreme. Okay, and what ends up happening is that we miss the main points of prophecy. And this is addressed in this opening chapter in the book of Revelation. In fact, it comes out in the first words. Okay, the first words of verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, this book is all about Jesus Prophecy is all about Jesus. But often when we think about things to come, we think about it from our own perspective, what this means for me. Okay? And we can make it all about us. Now it's true, there are some wonderful things installed for us, but the primary focus of prophecy is exalting and glorifying Jesus Christ. He needs to be the focus. The spotlight is to be on him, not us. And this particular point is rammed home in this first chapter. Okay, starting with the first words, as I've mentioned, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, this book reveals the majesty and the glory of Christ. Okay, it says in verse 1, which God gave unto him. So God the Father gave this revelation to Jesus, who gave it to the church through the Apostle John. But I want you to notice that phrase, the Father gave unto him. The Father gave it to the Son. And one commentator makes this point. He says, the book of Revelation is the Father's gift to the Son. It is a reward for his perfect, humble, faithful, holy service. The Father promised to exalt the Son... And this book records his exaltation. The book of Revelation then details the son's inheritance from the father. Okay, so this is what this book and this is what prophecy is about primarily. It's about the exaltation, the glorification of 
Christ. Okay, understand, he humbled himself and he was rejected in his first coming. But there's a time coming when he will be exalted, when he will rule and reign. Okay, there is a time coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And this is recorded for us in the book of Revelation. Everything in this book is about Christ primarily. It's about him being lifted up and glorified. Okay, that's the intention. That's the purpose of things to come. And John wants to ensure that we don't miss this vital point, and hence the focus is clearly on Jesus in this first chapter of Revelation. And this sets the scene for the entire book. And what I want us to do is to focus on what this first section teaches us about Jesus. I'm not going to focus on the first three verses. Pastor Matthews addressed much of that in the content last week. And hence, I want to pick it up at verse 4. In verse 4, we learn about the original audience. John was writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And these seven churches are later named in verse 11. And they're addressed one by one in chapters 2 and 3. And it seems that John had a close association with these churches. Now, he begins by using a common greeting of the time, but it was one that has been infused with new and profound meaning in the gospel. He says, grace be unto you and peace. And this grace and peace comes from him which is and which was and which is to come. that, That particular phraseology stresses eternality and it seems likely that this is referencing God the Father it could be speaking of Jesus but he's mentioned by name in verse 5 hence God the Father seems the most logical and since God the Father is the author of salvation grace and peace coming from him first makes sense theologically the greeting then continues it says and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And this generates a little bit of discussion. Who is this referencing? Who are the seven spirits? Some say it's referring to angels, but that's unlikely, because otherwise you've got God the Father, you've got God the Son, and you've got the angels sandwiched in between. You could read that to be equating angels to the same level as God the Father and God the Son, and we know that is blasphemous. Likewise, grace and peace doesn't come from angels. And hence, it's best to view this as a reference to the Holy Spirit. But why does he use the term seven spirits? Why not just say Holy Spirit? Well, in the book of Revelation, 278 of its 404 verses refer or allude to the Old Testament. And there are two portions of scripture that help us understand this terminology used by the apostle. But before we get to those two portions of scripture, I need to state the obvious. This does not mean there are seven Holy Spirits, but rather the number seven depicts him in his fullness, in his perfection. So there's only one Holy Spirit. Now, the first portion of scripture in the old testament that sheds some light 
on this term is Isaiah 11 and verse 2. And this particular portion of scripture is speaking of the spirit of the Lord being upon Messiah. And then it lists seven qualities of the spirit. And perhaps that's behind John's description. So there's one portion of scripture that sheds some light. I think the primary text he has in mind is found for us in Zechariah chapter 4. Now in Zechariah chapter 4, the prophet is awoken by an angel. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? I'd be slightly freaked out. And he he receives a vision. And this is what he saw. Verse 2 says, I have looked and behold a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. And then the meaning of this vision is supplied in verse 6 where it says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. So this particular vision in Zechariah 4 is about the spirit. And it mentions the number 7. And it's this that I believe John has in mind with this term, seven spirits. So here we have God the Father, the first member of the Trinity. Then we have the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Grace and peace have come through them. And then we have mentioned Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity. And there's no debate about that. Verse 5 is very clear. And from Jesus Christ. So grace and peace also comes from him. But here's something interesting. Why is Jesus listed last? You normally list the Trinity in order. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But here, the Son is third. Why? Okay, well, it's fitting to have him last and offer a more detailed description because he's the theme and the focus of this book. That's why I believe it's structured in that way. And what we're going to do in the rest of our time, we're going to stand... And we're going to gaze at the beauty of Christ as revealed in this portion of scripture. Okay, so, so it's like we're witnessing some beautiful scenery. Okay, we're on a lookout, we're high up on the hill, and we're going to see the beauty and wonder of Jesus as revealed in this description. Okay, and the intention is for us to be awestruck and captivated all over again by our precious Lord Jesus. There's five things I'd like to draw out from this text about Jesus. The first is this. Jesus is the revealing one. Verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. It's a little tricky to decipher exactly what is meant by Jesus, the faithful witness. The Greek word is used in different ways. It can speak of a martyr. This term was used of Stephen. But it's used more regularly to speak of someone who testifies. And throughout the New Testament, it's often used of a Christian. Someone would be called a witness for Christ. The Apostle Paul, when he was explaining his apostolic call, he said he would be a witness of the things that he had seen and heard. So often this term spoke of one who would speak and represent the truth, 
and even be willing to die for that truth. So with that in mind, here are some proposed interpretations of our text. Some scholars feel this is referring to Jesus as the faithful witness of God. So he is the one who reveals God. Okay, he is the perfect witness of what God is like. So we see what God is like through Jesus. Okay, we see it through his perfect sinless life and by his words and works. So Jesus reveals the character of God. He's the perfect witness to the nature of God. And this is in harmony with other scriptures. In John 14, Jesus teaches that those who had seen him had seen the Father. So it's true, Jesus has revealed God. Why? Because he is God. And if you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. He's the perfect witness. And that may well be what this description of Jesus is speaking about in this verse. The second interpretation. Some scholars believe John has Psalm 89 verse 37 in mind. Now Psalm 89 speaks about David being the anointed king and that his seed would be established on the throne forever. In fact, this psalm, it kind of functions like a commentary of the Davidic covenant that's recorded in 2 Samuel. And this psalm was regarded as messianic by the Jews. And the strength of this interpretation is that in verse 27 of this psalm, it mentions firstborn, and it mentions that he would be higher than the kings of the earth. And these are the next two qualities revealed in our text. Okay, those two things are attributed to Jesus. And hence it's possible that verse 37 was on John's mind. Okay, Psalm 89 verse 37 says this, It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Okay, so here the moon is spoken of as a faithful witness that David's seed would continue to reign on the throne. This then is applied to Jesus. So he being the perfect witness means that he is the Davidic king. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenants. Jesus Christ is of the seed of David and he will sit on the Davidic throne which will endure forever. Okay, so that's the second proposed interpretation. The third, which is similar to the first, is that Jesus was the model testimony for God even unto death. So he did God's will perfectly despite the immense cost. And this proposed understanding is backed up by 1 Timothy 6.13, where it says that Christ Jesus, before Pontius Pilate, witnessed, it's the same word, a good confession. Okay, so there the word witness is used of Jesus. And this word is also found in Revelation 2.13. And there it's used of someone who was put to death for the faith. So perhaps this is John's intention. Jesus was perfectly faithful in every area of life, even when it meant death. Now, to be upfront with you, I actually don't have a strong preference of what I believe is the correct interpretation. Uh, I'm actually comfortable with 
any of these interpretations. So I will leave that with you. And perhaps John meant to include varying aspects because all three are certainly true. Okay, and this is the greatness of Jesus. Okay, he lived as the perfect witness. It's true. His life was sinless. Okay, and that's unfathomable for us, isn't it? Imagine a life sinless. Not one sinful word. Not one sinful action, attitude, motive, or thought. So, man, we struggle to do that for one hour, let alone a whole life. Jesus, completely blameless. He also revealed what God was like in every single situation. He revealed how God would deal with the mundane matters of life. He revealed how God would deal with the difficult situations of life. He is the perfect witness of what God is like. And he did remain completely committed to the will of God, even though that meant going to the cross. Jesus did live for the glory of God, no matter the cost. He is the perfect witness, and that is why he is the perfect king. So Jesus is the revealing one. Secondly, Jesus is the resurrected one. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. You know, death is one of the few things that nobody can escape. It's referred to as the great equalizer. Everybody throughout history that has faced death has been defeated by it. doesn't matter if you're male or female, rich or poor. Death strikes us all. And there's only one exception. And that's Jesus Christ. He defeated death. The text refers to Jesus as the first begotten or the firstborn of the dead. And this is speaking of his resurrection. The Greek word translated first begotten is prototokos. It occurs nine times in the Bible and most are in reference to Jesus. Usually it's translated firstborn. Colossians 1.18 calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. And that's very similar Greek phraseology to our text. Now, this particular Greek word, it can be used in two ways. It can speak to the firstborn of a family chronologically. Okay, so I'm older than my sister. I would be the prototokos in my family. But there's another meaning, and this was the primary way that it was used. And it stresses rank, priority, rulership, or supremacy. And this is how it's used in our text. It speaks of preeminence. It speaks of supremacy. And this implies at least two things. Okay, firstly, Jesus is the first to be resurrected. Okay, so Jesus' resurrection is the first of its kind. Now, we know his was not the first resurrection in the Bible. Okay, there are other resurrection accounts. And yet there was never a resurrection like Jesus before his own. Because understand, anybody that was risen from the dead faced death again. Okay, theirs was a restoration to normal physical life. They still faced death and decay. Okay, Lazarus died again. Okay, whereas Jesus, he was raised immortal. He received a glorified body. And this is the first 
of that kind. Nobody else had experienced such a thing. But this terminology also stresses that Jesus' resurrection is the premier one. It is the greatest one. Of all those who will be resurrected, and there will be many, I'll get to that, Jesus' resurrection is the grandest. His is the greatest. Why? Well, because his resurrection has made it possible for you and I to be resurrected. Because his resurrection, it declares that God the Father has accepted the payment that Jesus offered for our sin. And hence, Jesus is the trailblazer. The biblical term is first fruits. He has opened the door for the resurrection that Christians will experience. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our own. And for those of us who know Christ as Savior, one day we too will receive a glorified body. No more aches, no more pains, no more imperfections, no more sin. And this is possible because of Jesus Christ. And my friend, this is why Jesus is better than anyone else. Okay, this is why Jesus is better than any other religious figure. This is what proves beyond a doubt that he is God because Jesus overcome death. No other religious figure has done that. Okay, Muhammad is dead. Jesus is not. Okay, and this declares loudly the preeminence of Jesus. Okay, Jesus took on our greatest enemies, sin, death, and Satan, and he defeated them. That is the greatness of Jesus. Thirdly, we see that Jesus is the ruling one. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Jesus is presented as the prince or the chief of the kings of the earth. Again, this probably has Psalm 89 in mind, where God promises to make David's seed the highest of all the kings of the earth. Psalm 89 verse 27 says also, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. Very similar phraseology. I believe this has two things in mind. It's a promise that Jesus will rule and reign on this earth. Okay, Jesus will sit on the Davidic throne. So this is a clear foreshadowing of Jesus' future role as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as spelled out in Revelation 19.16. Okay, there will be a time when Jesus sets up his kingdom on this earth. He will be the visible king. He will rule and reign. This is part of... Of things to come. But I don't believe this is the only thing on the mind of the author because keep in mind that this is a greeting to churches. It was meant to encourage and strengthen them in the present. Many of them were having a difficult time. So this phrase also tells us that Jesus is ruling and reigning presently. Okay, yes, it's not on earth, it's in heaven, but that does not mean he is not the ruler. We believe that God is sovereign. That means he's ruling and reigning. He's on the throne. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's currently in the authoritative position. He's the ruler of the earth even now. It's just not as visible as what it will be in times to come. 
But even now, people are in positions of power because Jesus allowed it. In his providence, he permitted it. There is no one or nothing that's outside of the authority of Jesus, even at this very moment. As one writer said, all authorities, spiritual and earthly, are under his dominion and rule. That is true now, and it will be made crystal clear when he comes again. And this is a great comfort for the individual Christian, and it's a great comfort for the church. Okay, Jesus has not lost control of this world. Jesus has all authority and all power, and he's bringing all things together to accomplish his plans and purposes, all for his glory. That's a present reality. Now, what may not always feel like that in our lives, but that is the truth. And then there's a time coming when Jesus will rule and reign visibly his power his authority will become crystal clear we're told in the book of philippians that every knee will bow every tongue will confess that jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords jesus is the ruling one fourthly jesus is the redeeming one you know someone will often be regarded as a hero and will be honored if they are responsible for overcoming something that plagued the people. Okay, picture there was a country who had been oppressed by another country, and a small army arose and defeated the oppressors, which freed the people from the shackles of oppression. They would be honored by their people. Now imagine if there was someone who dealt with the biggest problem that mankind faces. Okay, and understand our biggest problem is not climate change, it's not inequality, it's not poverty, it's not a lack of education, rather our biggest problem is sin. Okay, and understand this is universal, because each and every one of us are sinners by nature. We sin ourselves, we are affected by the sin of others every single day, okay, we're in the grips of the tyranny of sin, but Jesus Christ has gone about dealing with our sin. Notice what John says, unto him that loved us. Jesus went to the cross because he loved us. Isn't that amazing? Okay, nobody held a gun to Jesus' head and made him do it. He was not tricked. He was not manipulated. That the cross was not some tragic accident, but rather it was the plan developed in eternity past out of love. And then Jesus went to the cross, accomplishing our salvation because he loved us. That's amazing. Romans 5, 8, okay? But God commended, God demonstrated his love toward us. Okay, who are we? In that while we were yet sinners, his enemies. Died for us. And my friend, if we grasp our awful condition, if we comprehend how rotten we are in our natural states, we're like that rotten piece of fruit. We're decaying and maggot infested. We're completely corrupted by sin. If we understand how wicked we are in our nature, in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, it's absolutely astonishing. That Jesus loved me. And such was his love that he went to the cross to wash us 
from our sins in his own blood. Words cannot adequately describe the love of Christ. And here's the thing, love is in the present tense in this verse. So Jesus loved us. That was proven at the cross. That's the clearest demonstration and illustration of love. And in light of the cross, the believer can be confident of God's love for them. But Jesus not only loved us at the cross, his love continues. Present tense, it's it's ongoing. Continues to love us now and his love for us will never cease. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And because of his love-motivated work on the cross... If you're a Christian, and what I mean by that is you have repented of your sin, you have turned from it, and you've placed your faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross, get this, we have been washed by the blood of Christ. We've been washed clean. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And because of Christ, we have been freed from the oppression of sin. The the chains and the shackles have been removed. Jesus has freed us from the slavery of sin and he has made us clean. He has removed our sin-stained garments. He he has cleansed our deep sin wounds with his own blood and he has clothed us in his perfect righteousness. And just in case that's not enough, he's also made us kings and priests. Kings is speaking of God's kingdom, which is a corporate reality. It's true we're in God's kingdom now, but this primarily points forward to the kingdom to come. And we are priests individually. If you're a Christian, what this means is you have access to God. You can pray to God. And we are also God's special servants who represent him before men. Okay, this stresses our privilege and status. Nobody is as blessed as a Christian, and this is ours because of Christ. My friend, this is Jesus. There's nobody like him. And through his substitutionary life and death, we're saved. Understand, Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have, but we didn't. He died the death that we should have, but now we don't have to. He paid the penalty we should pay, but cannot. And he graciously gives us salvation. And all of that is motivated by love, even though we were his enemies. Jesus is the Redeemer. And fifthly, Jesus is the returning one. Jesus is the returning one. Verse 7 commences, behold. It's like it's saying, ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention? Listen up. Okay, it's meant to, to stir the heart and minds to consider what follows. This is the first of 25 occurrences in the book of Revelation. And here it's significant because what follows is like a sneak peek into the book. Verse 7 is like a movie trailer. And, and it pronounces that Jesus is coming back. We're told that he will return in the clouds just like he was caught up in the clouds, Acts chapter 1. Now, clouds throughout the Bible are visible manifestations of God's presence. And hence, it's an appropriate way for Jesus to return. 
Okay, and this identifies Jesus with the vision of Daniel. Okay, again, so we see Old Testament connections. Oh, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Now, it's important for us to identify that, that here, verse 7, it's not speaking about what we call the rapture. Okay, because at that time, believers are caught up to meet Jesus in the clouds. But this is speaking of the second coming of Christ, and this is the central theme of Revelation. And notice in verse 7, it says, cometh. Again, this is in the present tense. It's what we call a futuristic use of the presence. And what the idea is, the coming of Christ is so certain that it's as though it's already happening. Okay, Jesus is coming again. And all people will see him. That's what we're told in verse 7. And what this tells us is that the return of Christ is not just some spiritual reality. It's not something that's invisible, but it will be literal, historical, and visible. And when it happens, it, it will not happen secretly. Everyone will know. Okay, even the Jews, that they are in mind with the phrase in verse 7, they also which pierced him. That's a reference to Zechariah 12.10. Okay, that they will realize who he is. And the whole earth will wail. Okay, there is this universal recognition of the return of Christ. So my friend, understand that Jesus is coming back. Jesus will rule. Jesus will reign. And this is unpacked in detail throughout this book. Okay, Jesus is the returning king. And just in case we have any doubts, just in case you think, as if that's going to happen... Verse 8 is given, and this is like the divine signature. It's like Jesus signs this himself, and the divine attributes listed guarantee the certainty of Christ's return. Okay, Alpha and Omega stresses his omniscience. Beginning and end stresses his eternality, and Almighty stresses his power and sovereignty. And when we put all of that together, it declares loudly that there is nothing that can stop Christ's return. Okay, he knows everything. So there's not going to be something unforeseen in the future where he thinks, oh no, I didn't see that coming, now I can't return. Likewise, he's all-powerful. Okay, there is no one who is powerful enough to stop Jesus returning. Okay, nothing can prevent it. Okay, Jesus Christ is coming again. There is nothing so certain. And hence, I present to you Jesus Christ. There is nobody like him. There is no one as glorious. And there is no one even close. How should we respond? How should we respond to Jesus? Okay, as we stand at, at the lookout that I mentioned before, and we stand in awe of the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, what should we do? What's the appropriate response? Well, we'll notice verse 6. It says, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, this is not saying we give Jesus glory and dominion because he already has it. We are simply recognizing that he has it and honoring him for it. Now, to recognize the glory of Jesus, what does this mean? What does it look like? Well, it's to come out for him. 
It's to live for him loudly and proudly. It's to share him with everybody who will listen because he's so great. It's to love him above all else. And Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this phrase, said this. He said, some of you are very like a mouse in the wall. You are in the Lord's house, but you are not known as one of the family. Sometimes you give a little squeak in your hiding place and sometimes come out at night as the mouse does to pick up a crumb or two without being seen. Is that worthy of your Lord and Master? So my friend, think about how great Jesus is. We've seen it here. Jesus is the revealing one, the resurrected one, the reigning one, the redeeming one, the returning one. He is the central theme of history, past, present, and future. There's no one like him. And surely, as his people, we can't be hiding like a mouse and make the occasional appearance or the occasional declaration about him. But surely we should be all in for Jesus. Surely we should be captivated and enthralled by him. Surely he should be the greatest love of our life. Surely he should mean more to us than anything else. Surely we should be telling the world about how great Jesus is. Surely that is the reasonable response. So let's come out of hiding. Let's stop being cowardly. Let's let everyone know that we love, adore, and follow King Jesus. May our lives be just like the intended purpose of revelation and prophecy in general, exalting Christ. Charles Ryrie has said that prophecy is designed to unfold the loveliness of Christ. Here's the central theme. It's all about exalting and glorifying him. And may we keep that in mind when we think and talk about prophecy. But more importantly, may our our lives have the exact same effect. May our lives glorify Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I I do thank you uh, for for what is a, a glorious portion of scripture and for what it teaches us about our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, it's, it's my desire that I would be more captivated by Christ, that my love for him would be growing, and it is my desire that that would be the case in, in everyone's life who is here tonight. Please help us. Help us with this throughout this week, we pray. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.